all these all these hats up here made me think of casting our crowns before the Lord. Like, Justice, you're on your way, dude. That's awesome. Uh, I was instructed to replace these batteries, so give me a sec. my hand, I got it, right? Hello. I felt like a minute. Be God, wonder who you asking. I ain't never held a gun if you was asking. That uh, felt like a minute to win it game, you know? All right. All right. Hey, my name's Dan. Uh, some of you may not know who I am. If you're new to the community this year, if you're a freshman or uh, new to Chi Alpha, my name, uh, I, I don't know what you just said, but you look embarrassed. Uh, and uh, so my wife and I and our family, we were part of Kaiafa for the last couple years. And then this last year, we've been support raising to go to Pioneer at the University of Denver. And so uh, we got fully funded, praise the Lord. And, and so one day I was at Nate's house and I was like, hey, Nate, like we're done we're just going to be here for a while before we go down to Denver. Is there anything I can help you with? And he goes, yeah. Do you want to take over for me for the rest of the year? <laughs> Which is, uh, I was not expecting. Uh, and then I said yes. And then I saw my calendar and everything I had to do still, and I immediately regretted it. But you know what? I want to serve Nate. And so we love Nate and Lindsay. They are now, uh, they are raising their funds so they can be fully funded to be on campus this fall so they can continue to lead you guys and change the world through CSU. Amen? Cool. Also, I do have to mention this little number on my wrist here, okay? My son, who is nine, uh, mate, is he eight? No, is he eight? Excuse me. Sorry. Hold on. He, uh, he made me this bracelet and a necklace for Easter. And as I was getting ready to leave the house tonight, he said, hey, hey, Dan, Dad, why, why, haven't you, um, why haven't you worn my, my necklace or bracelet that I gave you? And so I was like, you're right. Let me put it on. Walked out the house with the necklace. It's in the car because I don't want to flex super hard on all you guys. So uh, I'll put it on later. But uh, it like snaps when I, right? Okay. So I get the double snap. Yeah. I don't know what it means. It's just a bunch of stuff on here, but it's kind of tight, so it's, if I faint, it's because I lost uh, blood to my head. All right, so it is great to be with you guys tonight to share. Uh, it's been a little over a year since I last got to share with you guys, and so I'm really excited. Tonight, we're going to be closing our series on the book of Daniel. How many of you guys have been reading through Daniel as we've been going through? Anybody? Man, awesome. Okay, I got a few. I saw a few hands. They were humble. They're like, I don't want to stand out. So uh, we're going to be closing it out by going through Daniel 11 and 12. And so far, we've had a lot happen in the book of Daniel over this semester. We've, uh, Daniel and his friends and the fellow Israelites are, have been exiled to Babylon. And that's where Daniel is writing this book. 
And so far, we've seen them gain a lot of favor in, with the king. We see them be, uh, try to have their Jewish identity erased. Uh, we've seen Daniel perform miracles. We've seen him uh, interpret dreams, see visions. We've seen a giant handwriting on the wall. Uh, we've seen them uh, be persecuted and thrown in the lion's den and trying, or thrown in the fiery furnace. So there's been a lot, okay? And so tonight, uh, we'll, we'll close it out, and I'll give you a brief a, a flyover of 11 and 12 uh, because there's a lot of intricate detail. If you read it, we're just going to get lost in the weeds, okay? Um, and then we'll highlight a couple of verses as we go through. Sound good? All right. So Daniel 11 picks up right where chapter 10 left off, where an angelic messenger has come to Daniel and is giving him this prophetic vision. And really what it is, it's a history lesson of what's going to transpire in the Middle East. But it's over a span of 160 years, okay? Now, the book of Daniel is believed to have been written mid-6th century B.C. or around 530 B.C. And what the man is telling Daniel is something that are, are wars throughout the Middle East that are going to take place starting at around 323 B.C. and going all the way through for 160 years until 164 B.C. So that's like 370 years that Daniel is going to get like this window into, okay? So it starts out in verse chapter 2. It says, Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. So this prophecy is talking about four Persian kings. And there's going to be a fourth one to rise up that's going to be stronger than all of them. And this was fulfilled in King Xerxes. And Xerxes built up his army and he decides, hey, look, we're going to go fight Greece. And so he goes to go invade Greece, but he's pushed back. And he, and he returns. Verse 3, it says, Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now, some of you are history nerds. How many of you guys just love history? Anybody? Joel's not here. I know Joel loves history. I am not a history nerd. But this prophecy was fulfilled by Alexander the Great. And some, something about Alexander the Great, it, you know, he only gets two verses here, right? It's like Daniel just moves on past him. You would think he would get a lot more uh, stage, stage time and face time because he's such a prominent figure in history. But the thing is, Alexander the Great didn't play a huge role within, within the nation of Israel. Okay? And, and Daniel is writing this letter or this book. He's writing it for Jewish people to read later on. Okay? And so because they don't have anything to do with, with the Jews... He just kind of moves on past. And the reason why Alexander the Great 
does not harass the Jews is a very fascinating story. On his conquest, he's coming near Jerusalem, and before he gets there, he has this dream. And in this dream, he meets the high priest in Jerusalem. Well, he comes the next day, and the high priest decides to go out to meet Alexander the Great. And he takes a couple emissaries with him. And Alexander the Great, because he had this dream, he decides to meet with them. And this was very uncommon, okay? So he meets with this high priest, and the high priest opens the scroll of Daniel. And he goes to what we call chapter 8. He goes and he starts reading about Alexander the Great. And all the conquests that Alexander the Great was going to complete. So Alexander the Great sees this, and he's so impressed and amazed that he's like, these guys are legit. This God, this God is awesome. And so he decides to leave Jerusalem and, and allow the Jews to continue to, to worship how they want to worship and practice their religion and serve Yahweh. And in fact, he even offers a sacrifice to the Lord before he leaves. And so, if you'll, you'll read about, it says his, he's going to rise up, but then he's going he's to parcel out his kingdom to the four winds of heaven. Okay, and we can look in history that Alexander the Great never had the opportunity to rule his kingdom. He conquered all this land, and then at age 32, he died of a fever in Babylon. And in verse 4, it talks about it won't go to one of his heirs. Alexander the Great didn't have, didn't have any kids to, to pass on his kingdom to. So what does he do? He gives it to four different generals. He gives it to four different generals. And so the rest of Daniel, chapter 11, is, is going to is going to give an account of two of those four, okay? Two of the four generals. And the reason it, why it doesn't mention the other two is the same reason Alexander the Great gets just two verses. They didn't, they didn't have anything to do with, with uh, the Jews' history. They didn't play any part in the nation of Israel. And so the two kings, there's two kings that are mentioned, the two generals. And that's the king of the south, and the king of the north, okay? Now, when I was a kid, I loved watching WWE, WWF wrestling, yeah? I'm not as into it anymore, but I just remember the awesome names that these guys had, like Macho Man or uh, Randy Savage, you know, uh, Brett the Hitman Hart, Hulk Hogan, you know, Andre the Giant, uh, those are some oldies. Um, the Rock. You guys know that one? Okay. Um, these are like awesome names, right? These are boring names. The king from the north and the king from the south. You think this angelic messenger would have a little more creativity? You know, he comes from God. Uh, instead, he's just like, here, this, there's this guy that comes from this area and this guy that comes from this area over here. And so the two kingdoms are... Uh, the Ptolemies in Egypt, which is the king from the south, and the, the Seleucids, I don't know how you say that, I think that's how you say it, from Syria, 
And that is the king from the north. And these two kingdoms battled each other for 130 years. They had different rulers each time, obviously, for, for many years. But there were always the king from the north and the king from the south, okay? And so, and, and what happens with, with the Jews is they get caught in the middle, okay? So you have Syria, and then you have Egypt, and right in here you have Israel. And so Israel is kind of caught in no man's land where they just have constantly have armies going back and forth, and they're fighting each other, okay? And then, so verses 6 through 21, okay, this is just flyover. Describe all these different battles, and you guys can go and read it if you want, and your head will start spinning within like five words probably. Uh, mine was, where you have these different battles, and you have these different political marriages between these two kingdoms. And this portion of Scripture is so accurate, and the detail is so intricate, because you can read about these things in history, like these things happen, that critics of the Bible believe, because it's so accurate, that the only way that this could have been written was after the fact of the events, that the events had to have taken place, and then Daniel or somebody wrote down what happened. I don't believe that. I believe that our God is an awesome God. And I think this speaks to the validity and the authority that Scripture has. That it knew things in history long before even historians did, right? Because our God is a God who knows everything he knows the past, everything that's been done. He knows the present. He knows what's happening in this world right now in this very moment. And he knows the future. He knows what is going to come. And then it goes on to describe more battles between the king from the north and the south. But then when it gets down towards the end, it starts talking about the king from the north goes down to invade Egypt, but he's turned away because the Egyptians, or the Ptolemies, called in help from the Romans. And this is the first time in, in history that the Romans acted in this part of the world. And there's a really interesting story where Antiochus, who was now, he's the king of the north at this time, Antiochus is on, on a beach after a battle, and he's talking to a Roman general and he's lost. And this Roman general offers Antiochus surrender. And he draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus. And he tells him, you have to surrender. You have to choose whether you're going to surrender or not before you leave this circle. And so Antiochus doesn't like to lose. No one does, really. And he returns to the north with his tail between his legs. And you can read all about this towards the end of Daniel. He returns to Israel or back towards Israel, and he is angry. He is so angry 
that he decides to take out his anger on the Jewish people. And we see what happened, what happened take place in verses 30 and 31. It says, ships of the western coastlands, which is Rome, will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant, which is the, the Jews. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. History tells us that Antiochus was a tyrant. Horrible ruler, awful ruler. When he returned to Jerusalem, he made it illegal for the Jews to practice their religion. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. And then he set up a statue, an idol of Zeus, right in the temple. Just blaspheming God and just committing total sacrilege. And then he later went on to slaughter thousands of Jews. And you can read about this in First and Second Maccabees. And then at the end of the chapter, in verse, or chapter 11, describes a battle with, with the king from the north that many people believe is, is one that hasn't quite taken place. And you'll find this with, within, when you read the prophets. Uh, that the prophets oftentimes will, will talk about something in a present tense, but also relate it to something that's going to happen in the future, okay? But in verse 45, towards the end, it says, Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. God is going to defeat evil and rescue his people. That is a promise. God is going to bring resurrection life to his people. Chapter 12, verse 13, the messenger tells Daniel, you will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Okay, so what is the point of, of all these prophetic visions? Why did the messenger come and, and share this with Daniel? Is it so we can say, oh, wow, so cool that God knew everything that was going to happen before it happened? Maybe. I think that's awesome. Like I said, it speaks to the validity and authority of Scripture. But it's much more than that. The book of Daniel is, a, is all about giving God's people hope in the midst of living in a world and a culture that is completely opposed to him and his values of righteousness and justice and mercy. See, first century Jews, when they're being oppressed by the Romans, could read Daniel and could read about the stories of how God saved Daniel and God's, from the lion's den. God saved his friends from the fiery furnace. 
And they could read that and say, man, there's hope. God's going to deliver us from the Romans. But even if he doesn't, even if the Roman Empire oppresses us and kills us, right here in Daniel 12, in the end, you will be lifted up to receive your inheritance. That even if they're killed, there's still hope that God is going to make it right. And you see, we can read Daniel the same way. We can read Daniel and see that God is going to bring justice against the evil kingdoms of this world. That God is going to bring justice to those who oppose him. We can see in Daniel how we, are, how we ought to live in Babylon. How we are to live in a, in a, in a community, in a nation, in a world, in a culture that is so opposed to God and live out our faith. And we can trust that God is going to deliver us like he did. But even if he doesn't, even if we are oppressed and we're persecuted, we have a hope and a trust that the judge of all the earth will do right by those who love him. Now, there is some debate about who this king from the north is. I mentioned Antiochus. And, uh, and, and the reason why there is debate is when you read Daniel 11 and 12, there's all these numbers of days and so when you, when you read that, people, scholars have tried to figure out, you know, okay, they're do, doing the math and they're doing history and they figure out, it doesn't quite line up. And so then they start, they start thinking about, oh, maybe he's, the king from the north is the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire crucified Jesus. The Roman Empire destroyed the temple. But again, the, the math, it doesn't quite add up. And then there's some who think that this king from the north is a figure in history that has not yet revealed himself. But the reality, I think they're all true. And again, like I said, the prophets did this often. You read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they will take a current event, what's happening in their, in, in their world, and they'll speak to it prophetically, but then that will also, it's like, it's like a small part of history, but then it, it's, it's, it's an archetype of what's going to happen in the future. Does that make sense? It's fascinating when you read the prophets, and so I think that's what's happening here with Daniel. Is he's, he, he's showing us what was going to happen, but he's also using the king from the north to depict this future ruler. Now, the king from the north, if you're paying attention, you're probably thinking he's a horrible person. And you're right. This is how Daniel describes it in verse 26. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. 
You know who that sounds like? Sounds like me. Sounds like you. We're all the king from the north. We have all opposed God, and we have all exalted ourselves and put ourselves on the throne of our lives and made ourselves ruler. It's every human outside of Jesus. Because Adam and Eve in the garden, when they rebelled against God, they took the fruit, and in that moment, they decided that they were going to be the ones to determine what was good and what was evil. And you know what? Humans have done the exact same thing for all of history. We determine what's good and what's evil based on what's going to serve me and my tribe. I don't care if it's at the expense of someone else in their tribe. And remember, what happened to the king from the north? Verse 45, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. God will bring justice to this good world. And those who oppose God will come to an end. I will come to an end. You will come to an end if we are the king from the north. So what are we to do? It says that he will receive no help. If I could get the worship team to come up. Luckily, God is not only a God of justice, but he is a God of grace and mercy. James 4, verse 6 through 10 says this, but he gives us more grace. That's, that's why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God will oppose you if you remain in your pride. And like the king from the north, you will come to an end. You will come to destruction. But the word says, but if you humble yourself, if you grieve over your sin, if you repent of your sin, the Lord will lift you up and you will receive the same promise that Daniel is given by the messenger. You will rest and at the end of your days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. When the end comes, because of Jesus' death, in his resurrection, if we humble ourselves before him, he will raise us up from death and we will receive our inheritance. And who is our inheritance? It's Jesus. His kingdom. 
We inherit the kingdom of God when we humble ourselves before the Lord. But we have to vacate our own throne. We can't be the king from the north anymore. We will come to an end. So tonight I ask you, have you humbled yourself before the king of kings and the Lord of lords? If you haven't, man, you're full of pride, you're full of selfishness, and you're in opposition to God. And you will not inherit the promises that Daniel was given. You you won't. You will come to an end, but God loves you. He loves you, and his word says that he wishes none shall perish. So as the team leads us, take a moment. If you need to repent, if you need to bow before the Lord and say, God, I've I've been full of pride. I have put myself on the throne of my life and I have opposed you. Surrender your kingdom. Surrender your rule in your life and give it to the Lord. And in doing so, he will exalt you and you will receive the inheritance that is Jesus. Amen? So let's take a moment. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Jesus. We're so thankful that you are a God of justice. God of grace and you're a God of mercy Lord we thank you for repentance Lord we thank you that you give us opportunity to humble ourselves you didn't have to God we don't deserve it but in your grace Lord thank you that you humbled yourself. God, you humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross. And that same promise that spoke to Daniel is for you, Jesus. You lifted yourself up from the grave. I pray that we would be men and women of God who live in humility, God, that we would not be full of pride and opposition to you, but Lord, we would humble ourselves before you, vacate our thrones, and put you in the rightful place, Lord.
throne of our heart. And Lord, I pray that we would leave you there. We would not rebel against you and try to take back our kingdom, but Lord, we would leave it at your feet and allow you to be the good, benevolent ruler that you are in our lives. We love you, Jesus. We love you, King Jesus. You're so good.